Genesis chapter 35 is where we're going to be. We're going to start in verse uh, 16. And we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We're going to end in 37.1. So uh, we have a lot to get to. So I want to pray, and then I want to just dive in uh, to this text uh, together. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we do get to gather together. I thank you that we can sing songs of glory and of praise to you, that we can exalt you, the crucified Savior. I pray for this text, God. We know that where your word is proclaimed, life happens, and so I pray for our hearts, that how we receive this text would be what we would need, whether we need to repent, whether we need encouragement, whether we need um, just comfort, whatever it is, Lord, that your word would give the life that we need. We thank you for Jesus, we thank you for the finished work of the cross, and it's in your name we pray, amen. Genesis 35, verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had a hard labor, and her labor was at its hardest. The midwife said to her, do not fear, for you have another son, and her soul as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, which his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. And Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent near the Tower of Eder. So for a long time in Genesis, it feels like we've been dealing with Jacob, and we've been walking through his life, and finally we come to the passage where we're going to transition away from Jacob's life, and the story is going to pick up with one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, and then there's a few others kind of sprinkled in there. So remember, Jacob's had his name changed twice, right? Two times God's affirmed the name change. His name means Israel now, and it means that he has the covenant blessing that God has had. He, his, the line of the snake crusher is going to go through Jacob. And God has used in Jacob's life lots of trying and difficult times because he was a hard-headed man. And he's used those trying, he's used those difficult times. He gave Jacob a limp limp to bless Jacob in the sense that to bring Jacob closer to God. And so finally what we see here is Jacob is growing into a godly man. He isn't perfect. Uh, We'll see that that he's going to play favorites still. But he's taken a step forward spiritually that that, that is huge progress for him. And so they go to to Bethel. Uh, If you remember the story, they didn't settle in Bethel initially. There was rough and terrible things that happened because of it. And so finally they go to Bethel, and that's where God blesses Jacob. That's where God renames Jacob. That's where God reaffirms the covenant of Abraham and Isaac, his grandfather and his father, now with Jacob. All of that happens at Bethel. But then this story starts with, and then they left Bethel, and they journey away from Bethel. And we'll see why in in, in just a minute. But then it just kind of jumps in here with the story of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. We have not even been told that she is pregnant. All of a sudden it just shows up. And and Rachel, who has been his wife, who has not been able to conceive, she had Joseph, and now we find out she's pregnant again, but this is a difficult pregnancy for her. And so she is in agony. And the text tells us that, that she's going to die in childbearing. 
And so in the midst of the agony, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of when she is physically dying, her son is born. And so the midwife, remember, remember Jacob's mom's nurse had passed away in the story before? So a different midwife, who the one who hadn't been there, the new midwife, looks at her and tries to affirm her, reassure her, and say, hey, you've had a son. And she names him Ben-Oni, <laughs> which means the son of my sorrow. She's in pain. And Jacob, whose name means heel grabber, deceiver, wrestler, understands how much a name can impact someone's life. And so Jacob renames Ben-Oni from son of my sorrow to Benjamin, which means son of my right hand. And in the biblical story, the right hand is the hand of power. It's the hand of strength. It's the hand of uh, providence. It's the hand that, that guides things. Not the left hand, the right hand. The great irony in my life is I am Benjamin and I am left-handed. And so it's just a Jacob wrestling thing that's going on. If you remember back when the battle of the babies was going on with Leah and Bilhal and Zilphal and, and Rachel, when they're having all of these babies and passively aggressively naming them after each other to get at each other, one of the things that Rachel says to Jacob is this in Genesis 31. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I shall die. It's foreboding to what happens to her. And so Jacob buries Rachel. He sets up a tomb to mark her location as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness. Moses points out to us, and by the way, this pillar, this tomb is still here. You can still go see where Rachel's tomb is at. This was his favorite wife. He's told us this multiple times. She has his favorite children, which we'll learn in the story, Joseph and Benjamin. And he's experienced a lot of suffering and a lot of pain, especially here lately. Remember when they, they pack up to leave from Shechem, they bury all of the idols, so there's a funeral there. They bury his mom's nurse, so this tie-in, this reminder, he's a mama's boy. He was in the kitchen with mom, not out in the fields with Esau. They bury her, and now his favorite wife is dead. It's just death after death after death for Jacob here. And all of those things forge on him. All of those things leave marks on him, but the death of Rachel stings particularly for him. Later on in, in Genesis, when, when Jacob gets to Pharaoh and he's talking to Pharaoh, Jacob says this in Genesis 48, 7. For as me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. And there was still some great distance to Ephrath, and I buried her on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. That's at the end of Jacob's life. So what Jacob is telling Pharaoh is this marks him. It doesn't feel like it in the story because it kind of just moves on, but we know from looking later that, that the death of Rachel is something that stung for Jacob. He's gone through a lot. He is the covenant bearer. He's the chosen line that God is going to work through history with. The, the snake crusher goes through Jacob's line. The Messiah goes through Jacob's line. And we saw that he just got renamed. He just got, like, now he's Israel, and he's taken the spiritual step, and he's doing the things he's supposed to do. And it's a good reminder for you and I, if we're believers, that just because we're believers in Jesus Christ does not mean that life is easy and that bad things don't happen to us. If we're believers in Jesus Christ, then what ends up happening is those things still happen. People still die. 
Relationships still get broken. There's still wounds that hurt. But God is the God of Jacob. And he's a God who doesn't abandon us in those moments. He's a God who doesn't leave us in those moments. He's a God who walks with us through those moments to forge us, to shape us for his glory and for our good. So we walk through those seasons of life that hurt. And this is a win. When we walk through those seasons of life that hurt, when we walk through those seasons where it's weeping and it's crying and it's hurt and it's pain and it's frustration and it's anger, we don't walk through them alone. The Lord is is there with us. And my prayer for our church is that we're a church that is the hands and feet of Jesus for other people in those times too. That if they're walking through pain, if someone's walking through suffering, whether it's self-inflicted from our own sin or it's just something that happens that's not due to our sin at all, but it's just suffering that happens as a part of life, that our church will be a church that weeps with those who weep, that cries with those who cry, that rejoices with those who rejoice. Not because we have it all together, but because we know the Savior who does. My hope is that we would be a church that constantly is pointing one another and others to Jesus over and over again. Verse 22. And while Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali. The son of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. Those were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and when he died, he was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. There's a lot of weird things kind of showing up in this little section of Scripture. It just kind of pops up in the middle of nowhere. We see Reuben, and it's important for us to understand Reuben. He is the oldest, Jacob's firstborn son, and not just Jacob's oldest child. He is the rightful heir of all of the things that Jacob has. He's also the son of Leah, not Rachel. This is important because what, it, what Reuben does is Reuben sinfully tries to take what is rightfully his. Reuben is worried about his mom. His mom is not the favorite. Moses describes her as having weak eyes. And he knows that now that the favorite mom has died, that Jacob is going to pick a new favorite. And it's going to be between Leah and it's going to be between Rachel's servant. And so what Reuben does is Reuben sleeps with Rachel's servant so as to to take some of the favor away from her so that Leah might be the favorite wife. And the second thing that, that Reuben's doing here is he's making a play as the rightful heir. See, in this part of the world, whenever the father passes away, it's the oldest son who inherits all of the father's things, including concubines. So it's basically Reuben saying, I want my inheritance before you die. And Reuben's plan 
fails. And the story just kind of is like Jacob doesn't really seem to care, but that's not true. Uh, it, it plans, and Jacob sees what's happening, and Jacob remembers this, because in Genesis 49, verses 3 through 4, when re- Genesis is wrapping up, Genesis is 50 chapters, so the chapter right before the end, Jacob says this to Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, and he went to my couch. So remember, Reuben's the oldest. And what Jacob's telling us is, you've given up your right as heir. And then we go to, well, who's the second oldest and the third oldest? Well, it's Simeon and Levi. And remember, they went and avenged their sister's death by killing all of those people. So who's the fourth oldest son of Jacob? Judah. The line that the Messiah comes from. And so Jacob is telling Reuben, you're not going to be the heir. You're not going to be the covenant bearer. You're not going to carry the line of the snake crusher because I remember what you did when Rachel died. It's an important point for us to just note, and we all know this, but it's important when the text brings it up to remind ourselves of this, is that sin carries consequences, and it carries consequences for a long time. And then we get this genealogy of Jacob that we've already read through the story. But we see here it's broken down by wife. Did you catch that? It's not by oldest to youngest chronologically. It's by wife. You have uh, Rachel's sons, and then Leah's sons, and then Rachel's servant, and then Leah's servant. And if you count them, there's 12. It's important. The Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness, who have just left the exodus, when when Pharaoh had entrapped them for years, it's starting to make sense to them, oh, this is our story. This is where the 12 tribes are going to come from, this family. And then we see this continuing theme of death for Jacob, where Isaac dies. And Isaac's death is written almost identical to the way that Abraham's death is written. The days of Isaac were 180 years. The days of Abraham were a lot. He breathed his last. He was gathered to his people. And then his two sons who had had such constant tension. For Abraham, it was Isaac and Ishmael. And for Jacob, it's Jacob. Uh, for Isaac, it's Jacob and Esau come together to bury their father. See, what we're going to see, and and, and we're about to dive into a genealogy with lots of really fun names, and so if you're looking for baby names, this is a great spot for some. Is that the story of, uh, of the Savior, the story of Jesus, the story of God is something that each generation has to discover and own for themselves. That our jobs as Christians is to continue to pass the story down, to continue to tell the story, not just to our kids, right? I I think a lot when I'm talking to my kids about Jesus and I'm teaching them, I want my kids to know Jesus, but I want my kids to be able to teach my grandkids to know Jesus. And then I want them to be able to do their, great, like this is something that we have to pass down. They don't get to ride our, if we're believers, they don't ride our coattails into heaven. They must own it for themselves. And we see this just subtly here in this passage where Isaac dies, his sons come together, and then we break down into this genealogy of Esau. So uh, 
Genesis 36, verse 1. Now, these are the generations of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, <laughs> Aholabama, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, Adah bore to Esau Elphaz, Basemath bore Rule, Ohalabama bore Jeshu, Jalama, and Korah. These are the sons of Esau who are with him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, all the members of his household, his livestock, all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. And he went into the land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. There's a lot here just to, to point out for us. Let me refresh you because it's been a while. When Genesis uses the word generation, in Hebrew it's called a toledot. And it breaks up Genesis into these ten almost chapters. So it starts way back in Genesis 3 with the generation of the, the land, and then it goes to the generation of Adam, and so on and so forth. We've had the generation of Abraham, we've had the generation of... Now we're in, now we're in the generation of Esau, and this is the ninth out of ten Toledots for the book of Genesis. And what we see with Esau, if we remember Esau, as I really think if, if Jacob and Esau were alive today in Ira, we would absolutely love Esau and we would despise Jacob. Esau is a man's man. He is a hunter and a good old boy. Loves to fish, but he misses the spiritual things in life. They just don't register with him. He is always chasing something, always trying to get the best opportunity, always trying to chase whatever it is that his heart desires, but what his heart never desires is to know the Lord intimately. He marries unbelievers for starters, and he has children with them. So we see that Esau loves the company of, of women and, and, and loves hunting. Loves, probably loves to fish. And he only gets the weekends and the evenings to do it. And so he makes sure that he takes advantage of it. He cusses a little too much, but who doesn't? He's just a good old boy. See, the problem for Esau and the problem for so many men throughout our history is men, males, are so easily content with what the world provides that we often miss that there's something deeper. We settle for a deer blind. We settle for a feeder. We settle for quiet mornings and quiet and peaceful evenings, sitting out in a blind, or we'll settle for having a line in the water, fishing as we aimlessly float around and we never miss, we never dive into the word. Brothers, the devil is a liar and he is good at it. And your life, if you are a man, is so much more than just entertaining ourselves to death. God has called us to be spiritual leaders in your home. He's called you to be spiritual leaders in your community. He's called you to be spiritual leaders in your church. So don't be content with the things of the world that bring temporary joy but have absolutely no salvation power. Look at Esau. 
he sold his birthright for good food. And he ended up being okay with it because he actually got out of life what he wanted out of life. He didn't need God to do that. He settles. He moves away from the promised land, away from the covenant family, and is happy about it. Esau's kids were born in the promised land. Did you catch that? They're born in the promised land, and then Esau moves. Jacob's kids, with the exception of Benjamin, are born not in the promised land and have to move to get into the promised land that God has given. And so Esau recognizes that in this little area where they've all kind of settled, which is where Isaac and and Abraham had dwelled, that there's not enough room, that they've grown too big. We've heard this story before, haven't we, with Abraham and Lot. And so what Esau does is he looks around and he says, well, I'll just move over to Seir because that land looks more fruitful. That land looks more like I can grow my herd, that I can grow my plants. I can have a better, more wealthy life over there. And so Esau moves. But what we also know from the story is he didn't have to leave the promised land. There was plenty of land north. But he decides that he doesn't want to be in there, and he leaves and he goes away because he is content with the temporary things of the world. How'd that work out for him now? At this moment in history, where is Esau and how is that working out? How'd that work out for his kids It doesn't on the eternal scale. It only makes sense when we become narrow, focused on just our life, and we skip and miss the eternity that comes. Verse 9. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites in the hill country of Seir. The names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, Rule, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Elphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek and Eliphaz. These are the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Rule, Nahath, Zerah, Shemah, Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Aholabama, the daughter of Anah daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau Jewish, Jalam, and Korah. Now, I know probably don't need, you guys understand all those names. You don't need to dig into any of that, right? Okay. A lot of those names are lost to history. It's just this record of these people, but there are a few of them that, that should perk up our ears if we're listening carefully. One of the main ones is a man named Amal- Amalek. He is where the line of the Amalekites come from. If you know the Amalekites, Moses, who's writing this story, knows the Amalekites because they're traveling through the wilderness, and the Amalekites will not let them camp in their land, and so the Lord punishes them. And when Saul becomes king, Saul, God tells Saul, go into the Amalekites and wipe all of them out. But Saul disobeys God, and he lets the king live, Agag. And later on in the story, talking about how sin has lasting consequences, in Esther, which I preached through Esther before Genesis, so it's been several years now, uh, Esther has to fight a man named Haman. Do you remember the story? And do you remember who, what line he's from? He's an Agagite from the line of the Amalekites, enemies of Israel. 
That's what we're meant to see here when we see this line of Esau's sons. As Esau and Jacob may have reconciled their relationships, but the further they move away from each other physically, the further they're going to move away from each other theologically. And they're not going to worship the same God. They're going to intermarry with women who have all of these idols, all of these men, this culture that worships a different God. And then all of a sudden, years later, that plays out in a way that's pretty horrific. That's Esau's legacy. He was good at hunting, he was good at fishing, he was a man's man, and his kids fight the Israelites. Verse 15. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The son of Eliaphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs, Timon, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gedim, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliaphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah, the sons of Rule, Esau's son, the chiefs, Nahath, Zerah, Shema, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Rule in the, the land of Esau. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ahalabama, Esau's wife. The chiefs, Juesh, Jalem, Korah. These are the chiefs born of Ahalabama, the daughter of Anah, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom. These are their chiefs. The sons of Ser, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibkan, Anah, Deshan, Ezer, and Deshan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Ser in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemim, uh, and Lotan's daughter Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Mahanath, Abal, Shepho, and Onam. These are the sons of Zibion. Ayah and Anah, he is of he is the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of Zibion, his father. These are the children of Anah, Deshan, and Ahalabama, the daughter of Anah. These are the sons of Deshan, Hemden, Eshba, Ithran, Cheran. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhah, Zavan, and Akan. These are the sons of Deshan. Uz and Aran, these are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anan, Deshan, Ezer, Deshan. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. If you don't get baby names from that list, I don't know. Aholabama is my favorite. That's what I'm going to push. What we see happening as we just step back and look at the story is we see that now these sons of Esau are transitioning to chiefs, which means now there's tribes and there's clans that the people have multiplied enough that now this governmental thing needs to be organized. There's one interesting note. Anytime there's a genealogy, if there's kind of a side note that comes out, that's what we're supposed to see. And what we see here is there's this guy, Anah, and and the SV says he found a hot spring. The wording in the Hebrew is, is kind of vague there, and it could, have mean, it could mean a lot of different things. It could be a hot spring. It could have been a den of snakes, or it could have been just a water source. And some commentators argue what they're really saying there is he's the first person to breed a donkey and a horse to get a mule. It's, he does something where everybody's like, this is the guy that you need to remember. And if we look at history, we're like, we have no idea who this guy is outside of this passage of Scripture. It shows us. Your legacy that you leave may not be as good as you think it is. And we see the wives and the kids of Esau marrying the kids of Seir. So that now they become one nation. Did you catch that? We got the the chiefs of the Hittites too. So that these people who, the son of Jacob, 
leaves the land of Jacob to marry these people who don't have the same God of Jacob and form this one nation that we learn is going to fight the Israelites over and over and just be a thorn in their side throughout history. Verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinahaba. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zer, Borah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Hasham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Hasham died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in this place, in the name of his city being Avith. Hadad died, and Shamlah of Mashkra reigned in his place. Shamlah died, and then Shual of Rehoboth on the Euphrates reigned in his place. And Shual died, and Baal Hamah, the son of Akbar, reigned in his place. And Baal Hanah, the son of Akbar, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, in the name of his city being Pau. And his wife's name was Mehebatha, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. Again, these list of people that we're a little bit confused of. But what's important for us to notice here is now they've shifted from chiefs to kings. And the scripture tells us all of these kings happened in Seir before Israelites had one king. Right before Saul is named king, all of these kings come from the land of Esau. And it's neat and it's interesting to note that this is the only passage in any of any historical documents that have ever been found that suggests there was a monarchy that was not based upon being the son of somebody. Did you catch all of these kings came from a different land? Which means at some point they had to vote or decide who were these kings going to be. This is the only passage in all of history where you'll find this thing happening. Yet that's not the legacy we remember them for, is it? It's noted that Hadad has now defeated Midian. And to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness, that wouldn't mean much. But if we're reading it, looking back, we know there's another king of Israel who defeats Midian. It's David. It's tying us back to this line of the serpent where the Messiah is going to come from. Verse 40. These are the chiefs of Esau, according to their clan, and their dwelling places by their names, the chiefs Tima and Alva, Jetha, Ohalabama, Ella, Penin, Kenaz, Tima, Mizbar, Magdiel, and Iram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possessions. 37 verse 1. The chapters and the numbers don't exist in the Hebrew text. Those are things that we've added in to help us find them. And so we separate verse 1 from the rest of it, but we don't need to do this. Read it together. Ready? Jacob lived in the land of his father, sojourning in the land of Canaan. Here's what's happening. It summarizes all of Esau's stuff and says, here's what Esau's doing, and he's living off in this land, but Jacob stays in the land of Canaan. They're meant to be compared to each other. It's meant for us to see that Esau leaves and Jacob stays. And if Jacob stays and he's in the promised land, so the line of the Messiah is going to come, what it means is Jacob obeys God. Jacob, of all people, obeys the Lord. See, when Jacob and Esau were were in the womb, God promised that a great nation would come from Esau. And what we see in this passage is that promise absolutely comes true for him. Not only does he have sons, but those sons grow so fast that they have to have 
chiefs of their clans and their tribes. And those grow so fast and they take over the residents of Seir by marrying into them. And now they have to have these kings who are ruling over this kingdom that comes from Esau. And Eden becomes a great nation. And it becomes a great nation much differently, more different than Israel becomes a great nation. It's the Israelites who are wandering in the desert that knows that the human author is writing these things too. And how do they become a great nation? Through captivity. They go into Egypt and then years later they leave Egypt as this group of people now. Wandering in the same wilderness that Jacob is wandering and waiting to get into the same promised land that Jacob and Abraham and Isaac were promised. See, I think if we step back and we look at the story and we pick, we say, which nation do we want to do? Do we want to have a quick rise to fame that's relatively easy like Esau and Edom, or do we want to do what the Israelites do? I think our natural human flesh is always going to want to pick the easy way, isn't it? We don't want to go through the trials of slavery for hundreds of years. We don't want to have to face a pharaoh and sit under him. It's a famine in the promised land that sends them to Egypt in the first place. We would much rather go where we can control our destiny like Esau, but how does that work out in the end? Think about all of these verses that we have covered. Think about all of Jacob's life that we have seen just in this morning's text where there's death and there's suffering over and over and over again in his life. And then we look at Esau's life and we just see birth after birth after birth and growth and growth and growth. Yet what we know is that God's people are the Israelites, not the Edomites. I mean, if we're honest, if we believe, like the ancients believed, that each nation had its own deity, and so whichever army was the strongest had the strongest deity, we would certainly not think that Israel has the strongest God. We would think that Edom does, because look how fast they grew. And that seems on the outside to be the life that we want, isn't it? A life of wealth. A life of of women, of hunting, of fishing, of eating, of getting everything that we want out of life. Yet what does that happen? What happens for Esau in the end? What legacy does that leave them? It leaves them with the legacy of being happy in the moment to defiling others with power and then in the end where life is fleeting and death comes quickly, you're powerless and you have nothing. What legacy does Jacob leave? Jacob is not a good person. We've walked through Jacob's story. But he's a person who receives the grace of God. does not get, his life is, I get so frustrated, his life is just over and over being a jerk to people, but what legacy does Jacob leave? He leaves a legacy of trusting in the Lord through faith and receiving the grace of God. He leaves the legacy of someone who doesn't trust in his own works because if Jacob's works are not going to get him to heaven. He leaves a legacy of trusting in the Lord completely. He leaves a legacy as someone who suffers. He leaves a legacy of someone who does about all of the wrong turns in life he could take, yet God's not through with him. 
He leaves a legacy, someone who wrestled with being content in the situations he's at and being happy with what this physical world has to offer, yet the Lord continues to pull him from that. He leaves a legacy of somebody who is impacted by the grace of God over and over. He leaves a legacy of being the one who passes on the line of the snake crusher. What we see in this story is, is there's two groups that are forming, and we've seen them throughout the whole book of Genesis, where you have this line of God's people passing down the line of the Messiah over and over and over again, but that line looks awfully thin a whole lot of times. When Abraham and Sarah are 100 years old and they have no child to pass the line on to, the line of the snake looks like it's going to fail. The line of the serpent crusher looks like it's going to fail. Well, the line of the snake is multiplying and multiplying and multiplying over and over again. We read the story here where we see Esau not following after the Lord and his family grows into a kingdom that needs kings. All the while, Jacob's family is enslaved by a king. It looks like the line of the snake, of the serpent, the, 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 the snake crusher is going to fail. Yet over and over and over through, history in those bleak moments where it looks like God is gone he's actively working behind the scenes that's the gospel if you want to worship a king and we want to bow down to the most strongest and best king we would we would never imagine a king that would come and die yet what the bible tells us and what the gospel tells us is that's the king we should worship The king that doesn't flee from us because we're not worthy. The king that doesn't run away from us because we don't deserve him. But the king who comes to us and makes us counted as righteous, not because of us, but because of him. The king who dies on the cross. The Messiah. And the reality is in our everyday life, what that gospel does is it sets us free from the curse of Esau. It sets us free from contentment and passivity in the world. It sets us free from the best thing in our life being shooting a big buck and catching a big fish. For those things are great, but it pales in comparison to the majesty of our Savior. I look at at my life, and I look at especially just Ira and, and West Texas culture around us, and I have a fear that we are a lot more like Esau chasing after secondary things and leaving a legacy that rejects the Lord as opposed to Jacob who is very much sinful but leaves a legacy of being changed and grown by the Lord. It's the question we ask, the question that this passage begs us to ask is to look at your life and to look beyond your life. What kind of legacy are we leaving? See, there are few things that are more certain than death comes for us all. And it is ticking away every moment. What kind of legacy are we leaving? Are we leaving a legacy that says, I am absolutely a sinner, but by the grace of God, I have been saved, and that's the legacy that we want our kids and our grandkids and the kids we teach at Sunday school or VBS or whatever to have? Or are we leaving a legacy that says, hey, Jesus is pretty good, but these things are good too, so let's just go do these things, and then maybe Jesus will have grace on us at the end. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. My fear is that there are a whole lot of people in Ira, Texas, who know the name of Jesus and will tell you they are a believer, but they are not. That there's no fruit of the Spirit that dwells inside of them. 
And God has placed you and he has placed me here with the gospel for a purpose. So that we might share this hope of eternal life with them. That we might grow in the hope of the gospel as well. I firmly believe that God is still working and is still moving and that he is still saving and he is still growing people. And we can look out in the broad culture and see that it sure feels pretty chaotic. It sure doesn't feel like God is doing a whole lot in America. It sure doesn't feel like God is doing a whole lot in our part of the world. It can kind of be just stable or, or, you know, it's just chaos. But it's in seasons like that that oftentimes what we realize is the Lord has been working in the background the whole time. What kind of legacy are you leaving? What is the Lord calling you to do? Lean into the gospel this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. Thank you that we can gather together and we can walk through, God, honestly, a passage of scripture that that can feel boring to us passage of scripture that's a list of names that that we can't pronounce right, that we struggle to even understand, that that, that we can skip through because it just doesn't seem to make sense to us. But God, we know that the Bible is your revealed word. It's you revealing yourself to us. And if you chose to put that in your word, then it's important for us that it's profitable. God, what genealogies show us is that death is certain. And at the end of the day, most of the things we do that think will outlast us don't. God, by your grace, for your glory, and for our good, most of us will be forgotten three generations after our death. Help us to leave a legacy, not of how great we are and all the good things that we've done. Help us to leave a legacy of your gospel, the grace of Jesus Christ. God, for any unbelievers who might be here this morning, I pray that you would stir within them. God, help them to see their sin, to see how terrible it is. And God, to see your cross and to see you, Jesus. And know that you are a better Savior than we are sinners. Help them to repent, to turn to you, to put their faith in Jesus and to live a life that reflects that. For believers here, God, I pray that you would help us to see the idols of contentment that are all around. And that we would cast them aside, not because it gives us salvation, but because the gospel is enough. You are enough. Help us to grow in you this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, Russell's going to lead us in response. I'll pray.